0: Richard Morris from Canberra, Australia. In 2014, I was very sick with complications from type 2 diabetes. After taking the dietary advice of the Australian Diabetes Association, I became more diabetic. Oh, no. (laughs) I did some research which led me to the ketogenic diet. Spoiler alert, I reversed my type 2 diabetes by drastically reducing my carbohydrate intake and increasing my consumption of healthy fats. In 2016, I was determined to help my buddy Carl by showing him what I did and the science behind it.
1: Hey, that's me. I'm Carl Franklin from the United States. I also used to be a type 2 diabetic, and I devoured all that information Richard sent me. And after a mutual friend went keto to address prostate cancer, I also went on the ketogenic diet. And that was in February of 2016. Yep. By April, I was in full swing reversing my diabetes.
0: We're not doctors. We don't give medical advice. We're just a couple of dudes on the internet who reverse their diabetes by following a ketogenic diet.
1: Right. We just want to share our experiences and what we know about the science behind the ketogenic diet.
0: Yeah. So, we started this podcast to chronicle Carl's journey and to provide solid information to those curious about this kind of dietary lifestyle.
1: And now we have over 200 podcast episodes, some of which have been downloaded hundreds of thousands of times. Mm -hmm. Oh, and by the way, after failing miserably on Facebook. Oh, yeah. We moved our online community to the Ketogenic Forums, where tens of thousands of people share their experiences.
0: We also founded an annual ketogenic festival called KetoFest. Carl and I are both software developers, and we used to find ourselves at software conferences several times a year, where we tend to gravitate towards the conversations that happen in the hallways at conferences. Sure, the talks are great, but it's a community that we enjoy the most.
1: Right. So, KetoFest is a conference to discuss the latest research of ketogenic diets, and it's also a festival celebrating the ketogenic lifestyle. And we intend to have another KetoFest in 2022 in October. And if you want to sign up to be notified of when those tickets go on sale, go to KetoFest.com, send us your name and email address.
0: So, Kyle, what is a ketogenic diet?
1: Well, that's a diet where instead of burning sugar and starch for energy, our cells preferentially burn fat, and that produces molecules called ketones that our bodies use for fuel.
0: Right. Our main molecular fuels are glucose, which we make from carbohydrates, and fatty acids, which we make from fat. Our cells have two modes. In one, they burn glucose and make fat, and in the other, they burn fatty acids and make ketones.
1: But you don't have to eat a high-fat diet to be ketogenic, Right.
0: When you're starting, you may have to, but then in a few weeks, as you become better adapted to burning fat for energy, when all of your calories come from fatty acids, the amount you need to eat becomes coupled to satiety, which integrates not only the variable amount that your body needs to run every day, but also the amount of fat that can be drawn down from storage.
1: So how many carbohydrates do we need to restrict ourselves to in order to get into that state?
0: That depends. Some of us who are metabolically disordered need to get below 20 grams a day. Somebody who's quite metabolically flexible can probably eat as much as 100 grams a day.
2: Hmm.
1: How about other nutrients like protein, minerals, and essential cofactors like vitamins and essential fats?
0: Well, you need from 1 to 1.5 grams of protein for every kilogram of lean mass. And beyond that, you just waste excess by turning it into energy instead of using fatty acids. As for the other essential nutrients, if you're eating fatty meats or eggs plus leafy green vegetables, you're going to get most of those because... Those organisms that made those foods have already concentrated those essential cofactors.
1: Ketogenic diets are varied and delicious. Yeah. They can be vegetarian or carnivore, home cooked or takeout, hot cuisine,
0: hot cuisine, <laughs>
1: <laughs> or just bacon and eggs.
0: Yeah, as long as your carbohydrates are low enough.
1: And if you're an absolute beginner, check out our starting keto episode for more information at start.2keto.com. So, how was your week, Richard? What's new?
0: Um, I'm getting ready to wrap up my research project and I'm about to go back to school to do a masters in February. So, it's coming into summertime. The we've just Australia just won the World Cup of uh, T20 cricket and we're about to start a, a long season of playing against the English. The English are coming to Australia to to visit and we're going to Play them in test matches, so that's wow. what I'm. That's what I'm up to.
1: Do you play cricket? Have you played it?
0: I'm uh, not since school, but uh, I I, hmm. I enjoy watching it. It's it's a game that takes five days. It's kind of like it's it's a, a baseball game, style yeah. of game, but a game takes five days, and most times it's not an outcome. So
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's older than baseball, too, right? Yeah,
0: it is. It is older than baseball, yeah. but it's a bat and ball game, so. Um, yeah. Similar kind of thing to baseball. There's no seven, seventh inning stretch or <laughs> none, none of those kind of rituals.
1: The third day stretch.
0: <laughs> third, yeah. <laughs> day three stretch. Yeah. So, how are you going, Carl?
1: I'm feeling good. I'm in control. And uh, uh, I had a really nice dinner last night of uh, braised beef ribs, which was wonderful. And I made a roast cauliflower puree. That, um I don't know, it, it turned out to be a little intense. I noticed that uh most of my dinner guests didn't finish the dollop that was on their plate. Uh, it was just very thick and pureed to hell, you know? Okay. So, and then it was roasted, so it had a kind of a brown color to it. So, you know what I'm getting at here? Yeah, like, it wasn't yeah. too appetizing to look <laughs> at, and it was really, the flavor was just really intense. So. It
0: looked like a poop. Is that what you say? Yeah, it kind
1: of looks like a poo. Yeah. <laughs> okay.
0: That's yeah. not how cauliflower supposed to look.
1: No, it's not how cauliflower. But it's kind of a problem we have in keto food, isn't uh-huh. it? I mean, m- brown food tastes good.
0: Yeah, brown food tastes great.
1: <laughs> Most of the time. Yeah. Uh-huh. So anyway, um, I am still using keto chow for meal replacements a few times a week, and uh, the flavor of the week this week was uh, root beer float.
0: Oh, interesting. Yeah. I, I have heavy cream and little. Years, I think last time was at the at the ice cream social. I think I had a root beer float.
1: Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So what I do is I use uh, heavy cream and ice water instead of all just water. Uh-huh. I put some ice crystals in there, so then when I buzz it up, it kind of thickens up into an ice cream shake kind of consistency, nice. and it tastes pretty good. Excellent root beer float. It's good. Well, uh, that's enough small talk. Let's get right into it with a little segment we call... All right. What
0: you got for us, Uh,
1: I went looking in the forum, as I do, and I I said, you know, this is a good time to talk about non-scale victories.
0: What are non-scale victories?
1: Non-scale victories are uh, benefits of going on a ketogenic diet that don't necessarily translate to weight loss. So I just picked a few from the forum and Midnight Moon says, three months and 25 pounds in on keto, I had to buy new pants for work. My old ones are falling off of me. First time in a 33 in over 15 years.
0: Well, that's kind of a scale victory. I, I guess it's not because it's size. The size is just yeah, the that's size right. Yeah, change even 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 though your weight may not necessarily change
1: exactly because the yeah. composition of muscle and fat. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Peter says, "I was just down on the floor giving the pellet stove a good clean, and needed to get up to do something. I realized as I was getting up that I wasn't holding on to anything. Just getting up. In the old days, I'd have had to spend a minute or two figuring out what to grab so I could pull myself up, or how to get my feet underneath me." to use the strength in my legs. Nowadays, I just get up off the floor. Sweet.
0: Yeah, that's a good non-scale victory.
1: That's great. Uh, Two more. Robin says, after 16 months of keto and all the support and information from y'all, I actually attended my 50th high school reunion with confidence and pride. Nice. Two adjectives I hadn't used in quite a while. Feels good. Thanks for your help.
0: Excellent. Well done, Robin. Excellent.
1: And this is one of my favorite. This is from Steve. Mm -hmm. It's an old one from 2017, but I've met Steve. He came to KetoFest and uh, he's a great guy. My oncologist's analysis of my pet bone scan taken 28 November 2017 looks like I'm in a full remission. Remarkable given that it was high volume metastatic prostate cancer. All blood tests are normal. I'm a little anemic, as is usual for me since radiation therapy. By the way, I've been following Ambro Hearn's lead in eating a ketogenic paleolithic carnivore diet for the last six to nine months. Love rare ribeye grass-fed and finished beef, smoked wild sockeye salmon, which is lox, and prosciutto. I use coconut milk and oil in my coffee and olive oil on my canned wild sardines.
0: Sounds like Steve's got a pretty good life out in there. Oh, yeah. I should mention that uh, it's been suggested that keto- that tumors are obligate consumers of either glucose or glutamine and or fermenters of, of those. And mm. uh, so uh, a ketogenic diet has been hypothesized to, to really put pressure on, on tumors uh, but not on the cells around it. So the cells around it with mitochondria can, can use fatty acids for energy, can use ketones, not a problem. Uh, but those cancer cells, they're, they're, they're really dependent on glucose and glutamine. Uh, and you should have a look at the episode from, uh, Dr. Thomas Seyfried, uh, yes. on that. Uh, but you know, I, there's no, there's no guarantee that a ketogenic diet is necessarily better for cancer, but it's, it's an interesting hypothesis that,
1: uh, sure is, yeah. uh
0: I'd like to see tested in, in, yeah, in different, uh,
1: tumors. So. Okay. But
0: well done, Steve.
1: Well done. Well done. Well, Richard, it's my pleasure, my absolute pleasure to welcome back to Two Keto Dudes, PB with no J. That's Peter Ballerstad to you.
3: Welcome back, Peter. The Sodfather is pleased to join you this morning.
0: (laughs) It it is a meeting of of the local branch of the Ruminati.
3: That's the it's it's a global gathering here it yeah is. that's right
1: it and uh, I did know the the hand the secret handshake at one point <laughs> Peter showed it to me um so I, I gotta tell you that uh last night believe it or not Mark Miller has been staying at my place for a couple of days and he is actually a guy that Richard hired and one of the reasons why I went keto in the first place because he got prostate cancer in 20. Sixteen, I believe it was 2015 maybe. And um, he went on a ketogenic diet and he's still cancer free and still hauling around suitcases full of keto snacks and bacon. Um, but anyway, so he was at dinner and I had gone to Restaurant Depot and gotten like 12 pounds of beef short rib. Uh, or maybe it was just beef ribs. There was no bones in it. And I did a slow braise. And, uh, Mark Miller was curious about how I do chicken nuggets with, uh, chicken thigh meat and skin and, you know, whizzed up into a pink slime and then fried. So he filled up on those and then the meat comes out. He's like, Oh, I'm not all that hungry. Dude, 12 pounds of beef. (sighs) Freezer.
0: What a shame. Crying well, I'm going to
1: make some enchiladas today. So, yeah. um, Peter, it's been so long since we caught up with you, but I know that your, um, your work involves um, talking about and dispelling the myths about meat and uh, its environmental effects and its health effects and why we should all be eating ruminants. Um, so, I, I don't know what's on your mind these days. So, we're just going to throw the ball to you. What's on your mind?
3: Well, thanks for the opportunity. Uh, my mission over the gee, how long has it been now? Has anything been happening since then? I don't know. Um, that didn't know. Nothing of consequence. Um, standing between my various tribes trying to introduce them to each other. So my background mm. is as a forage agronomist, a ruminant nutritionist. Like many, I had my own personal health journey. Reversing what at the time I was told was pre-diabetes. I'd probably consider it metabolic syndrome at this point, but, um, so that was 2007 that, that I had that. Um, and then in about 2010, I started showing up at, you know, human metabolic health conferences and, and became aware that there were things I knew about agriculture that weren't being communicated there. And then when I'd go back to my ag tribe meetings, I'd look around and go, wow, I really wish you could hear what I hear over in these others. So right. I'm still trying to do that. Hmm. I've gotten more and more interested in what's going on in the low and middle income countries in the world. And along the line, I've become increasingly interested in our current understanding of protein nutrition in human nutrition. And then there's some ties across that space that we could talk about. One of the key functions of ruminants is they are tremendous what we call upcyclers. That they take very low quality protein and they convert it into high quality, excellent sources of protein for human nutrition. In fact, they can take non-protein nitrogen. So plants will have things like nitrates or other nitrogenous compounds. And because of their rumen and the microorganisms that live within the rumen, that's converted into microbial protein, which the cow then digests. Hmm. Right. And and so they I always are- wondered
1: how how you know vegetarian or, you know, herbivores essentially made protein for their bodies. I really didn't know that.
3: Well, they're they're actually microbivores, if you want to look at it that mm, way. That's um, really yeah. interesting. <laughs> that that they take this high fiber, low fat, poor protein quality resource and convert yeah. it into relatively high fat, highest quality. They also do things like. Creation of vitamins, making minerals more bioavailable, et cetera, et cetera. So, wow. this key link in the food systems globally.
0: And this is a resource that's abundant on the planet, isn't it? This is grasses and uh, f- f- food uh, feedstock that that is is a- almost unusable by other animals. So.
3: And, and by us specifically. Yes. I mean, I mm-hmm. hate to be so, yeah. you know, <laughs> centric about humans, but um, yeah, the most abundant carbohydrate in the biosphere is cellulose. Right. And yeah. cellulose can't be utilized directly by any vertebrate animal. It's uh, entirely.
0: Ants and bacteria, maybe? Ants and bacteria are the only. Uh, well, uh, that
3: bacteria, can- fungi, um, oh, fungi course, are, yes. are the key. Um, degraders of cellulose.
0: Mm-hmm. Ants probably mm. use bacteria just the same way as cattle do, yeah.
3: Termites specifically, yeah, termites. I can speak yeah. to termites, yeah. Sure. I know some ants actually garden fungi, so wow. they bring <laughs> plant matter down into their nests and then fungi grow on that, and then mm-hmm. they harvest the fungi. So, now, little farmers. Yeah. <laughs> So,
1: I think I, Richard, this is going to be a fun game. I think I can make Peter mad. I'm going to make him mad with with just two words. It's early in the day. Well, okay, it might be one word with a hyphen. You ready? Plant based. (laughs) Oh, yeah.
3: (laughs) Was it Georgia Eid that says plant biased? Um, (laughs) 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 Nice. So, obviously, all of our food systems are plant based. Yeah, because l- right. life on Earth is dependent on photosynthesis, mm. the the capture of radiant energy, the production of oxygen as a byproduct, as well as carbohydrate. So we're dependent on the carbohydrate, either directly or indirectly, and we're dependent upon the oxygen, obviously. Mm. So in that sense, plant based, yes. But it needs to be understood that for human beings, plants are a relatively poor quality nutrient source. Interesting. Yeah. And
1: I didn't mean to bring that up to hate on vegetarians. I love vegetarians, especially with the right sauce.
3: Um. <laughs> well, you know, sometimes if the barbecue's right, you don't need the sauce. But, That's um, true, yeah. <laughs> nice rub. It's, it's <laughs> the right way. Um, we. I sometimes want to kind of look at the wording because we there are people looking at dietary choices globally, and they will make a difference between various dietary choices. So they'll call some people omnivores, and then they'll begin to look at pescatarians and ovo-lacto and whatever. Mm-hmm. And it seems to me like basically it's all omnivores. You're just differing in your choice of animal source food until you get to the tails on either end of the distribution where you're either vegan or you're carnivore. I but- feel like
1: it's a pyramid, like the pyramid of shame with vegans on the top. And they just throw shame on everybody. You know, the well- Ovalac day, the – pescatarians, and it finally comes down to the bottom of the pyramid, which is carnivores.
3: Well, and, and again, <laughs> I, I, I'm i supremely tired of us versus them, although it's easy for me to revert to that. Yeah. Um, uh, my greatest interest, and this will get us back towards the, the protein and amino acid nutrition, mm. is people are making decisions – And I'm pretty convinced that they don't have the necessary information to make appropriate decisions.
1: I mean, it's in popular culture everywhere, you know,
3: uh, plant-based equals healthy. And, and, you you know, know, good for you, good for the planet. And both of those are very arguable points, although you -hmm. wouldn't know that listening to general sort of media or or buzz or whatever the right right description is.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. So make your best case about uh, uh, about why um, uh, uh, plant-based uh, human diets are not a priori better for the planet or better for humans. I mean, and those are two different important.
3: Well, I guess aspects. one of the things I've learned from looking at low and middle income countries is the harm that comes to human beings when they don't get enough animal source food in their diet. Okay. So something between a quarter and a fifth of children under five years old globally are stunted. Mm-hmm. Wow, which is due wow. to a lack of essential nutrients which all the authorities say are best provided by animal source foods. Now, there's lots of reasons why that happens, but that's just an observation. Um One could also look at like a third of women of childbearing age globally are anemic. Right. And again, mm. this is the lack of a nutrient best provided by. So w- w- we have the reality that people in high income countries have choices that are not available in low income countries. And by the way, where do most of humans live? In in the low mm-hmm. and middle income countries, not in the mm-hmm. high income countries. So that's a key interest. N- uh, number two is a lot of the conversations about nutrition are based on false – assumptions let's just leave it that way okay. so people will consider energy from plants as equivalent on a caloric basis to energy from fat right calorie for calorie and they treat those as if they have the same metabolic effect on human beings we right? know right. that's not true mm-hmm. right um, and, and so does then, that come
0: down to does that come down to bioavailability?
3: Well, from the caloric point of view, energy from plants is going to be sugar and starch. Right. And we know that that has a different metabolic effect on human beings than energy from fat, which is what we're going to get from animal source foods. Um, Similarly, if we look at protein, and we may need to dig into this just a little bit, but for now, I can say that people talk about protein from plants as if it's equivalent to the same amount of protein from animals and in no way it's it's not and then you could go down the list and look at so minerals or, or vitamins we know vitamin need is in a sense is not in a sense is very much influenced by how much carbohydrates in the diet for example
1: Peter, I remember reading a little booklet on a vegetarian diet, and one of the claims that they made was that if you eat combinations of food, like, for example, cheese and rice, or cheese and and beans, or rice and beans, or whatever, that by themselves don't create a complete quote-unquote protein, but put together, do. Is there any shred of truth in anything like that?
3: Well, there is in the sense that in a meal, the combination of amino acids that we can absorb from the foodstuffs, and that's a critical issue, do make up for a lack that might be in any one of them, okay? Okay. But there's some critical considerations. One is that has to happen at each meal.
1: You're right. Okay.
3: Number two is, and I remember this quote from speaking with Dr. Hans Stein, uh, University of Illinois. Uh, an eight-year-old boy, he set the example in India, but I can't imagine that this wouldn't be true for any eight-year-old boy. Okay, If he had unlimited access to rice and lentils, mm. could not meet his essential amino acid nutrition, Wow, Due to physical limitations, you just can't process that much. So, you've got that going on.
1: I see. So, it's about the density of the amino acids in the foodstuffs. You'd have to eat so much of it that your stomach would explode kind of thing.
3: Yeah, physical limitation. Um, Also, we need to understand that, for example, a critical uh, amino acid like lysine, is very susceptible to being bound and made unavailable when we process the plant source food. So mm. the key example is you, you start with wheat, which is low in lysine, low value. And then you make whole wheat bread out of it, for example, and you cut that value by like a half. Mm. And we can find some, for example, corn-based breakfast cereals where the dias value, which we can get into, is essentially zero because almost all of the lysine has been irreversibly bound to carbohydrate mm-hmm. to make it you know, brown and crispy. That mm-hmm. browning reaction is that reaction. binding yeah. of lysine. And once that occurs, we can absorb it. So now it's not only a matter of is it there, it's a matter of can we absorb it. And then there's the stage once we absorb it, we're limited in the amount of amino acids we can use by the amino essential amino acids that's there in the least amount. And so we can use the amino acids up to that point and then everything else gets Oxidized and we excrete the nitrogen and et cetera. So it, it, and one of the amazing things to me is this is stuff that people in swine nutrition, which is not what I'm trained in, I have a little bit, but for four decades they've been aware of this.
0: And it hasn't made it into human nutrition, and yet we are—we're roughly similar to swine. We we're monogasts. We have one stomach, and we process our food in very similar ways, and we eat very similar kinds of foods.
3: As swine are now used as an an animal for testing to determine true ileal digestibility. So, it's complicated stuff. I mean, we can go back into the late 1800s when we started determining what's called crude protein. Mm-hmm. We'd take a sample of feed or food. we determine the total nitrogen content in it, micro-Keldol Keldol analysis. we take that percent nitrogen, we'd multiply it by 6.25 and convert that percent nitrogen into percent crude protein. Hmm. And that value is what's listed in almost every table and on the food labels as protein. Yeah. That's yeah.
0: almost as inaccurate as the outwater factors. I mean, it, it, that averages, I mean, the, the outwater factors, for example, of starch and sugar. Uh, I mean, the actual energy density of starch and sugar are different, but the outwater factor for carbohydrates is four, four grams per. I don't and know, know if anybody calories, listening besides
1: you guys knows what Richard just said. Yeah. So,
0: so the outwater <laughs> factors are, uh, are how you you you, you look at my energy brother. density. Of- <laughs> <laughs> All right, my, my 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 past three years of biochemistry are starting to show. So, right. the outwater factors are how you gauge the energy density of. Uh, macronutrients. So, okay. um, uh, carbohydrates and protein are said to have roughly an, uh, uh, an at water factor of four. So, four ca- kilocalories per gram of protein or per gram of carbohydrate oh, okay. and nine per gram of fat. But the thing okay. is that amino acids, all the, there's 20 amino acids and they're all different shapes, all different lengths. They clearly have different energy densities. Uh, and they range significantly. So, and mm. it's the same for for fatty acids. I mean, fatty acids uh, uh, oils ain't oils, <laughs> you know. So, uh, and, yeah, this, and putting
3: this- them together in a mixture mm-hmm. influences the value. And Atwater, I mean, there's tables and tables and tables of these values. Yeah. That mm-hmm. yeah. hey presto, four four nine. It's like well, yeah. you know, well, not really. <laughs> and the difference could could amount to a significant part of. The, the noise in the observed data. Right. And and so this is the same issue that I have with people talking about protein content in diets. And right. it's like, well, but what how was that exactly measured? So here's an example. The the NHANES data and say whatever you want about NHANES data, but from the 2015 Dietary Guidelines Advisory Committee. And I forget the exact page and figure, but when they looked at protein intake by various, by male and female, various age groups in the United States, they came to the conclusion that it was not a nutrient of concern. When the data itself that they were showing showed that 40% of Americans weren't meeting the recommended protein intake and most females over eight aren't. And there are two more problems with that, besides I don't know Mm -hmm. how you could get that conclusion from that data. But number one, they're driving towards an RDA, which is a minimum, but they treat it as if it's a target. Number two is they're considering all of the protein, again, crude protein, from plants as being equivalent to protein from animals. Yeah, And it is not. And so that those numbers are worse. Now we can go to low and middle income countries. And Professor Moen, um, last spring, I believe the paper came out, looked at over 103 countries and territories in the world, low and middle income countries. And again, people look at global data and they say, oh, mm-hmm. well, protein's not a nutrient of concern but when you move beyond looking at crude protein and you look at actual digestible utilizable you know lysine mm. you go to where 103 of those countries aren't meeting that target so it ma- you know the, the the subtitle is metrics matter on his paper um it it's it's really important and we haven't spent the time on it. And a part of me says, because we've been squandering resources on these false narratives of human nutrition based on um, nutritional epidemiology.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You know, there's a, if you take away the idea that some uh, non meat eating humans in whatever category you want, um, uh, eat just crappy vegetable matter food right if you take that away um you're left with this idea that they will have to take supplements because of, there are just some things that are not available in any kind of um vegetable form a- a choline comes to mind is choline one of those things that uh, you won't you get in abundance from eggs and and maybe meat I- i'm not sure mm-hmm
3: and it, let's just make the point that you, I have no doubt that you can put together an omnivorous diet without red meat, right? Again, this is why I want to deconstruct the vegetarian thing. Right. It's, it's omnivorous. So, okay. Fish, poultry, eggs, dairy, right? Yep. You can do that. Um, and again, we need to make sure that we have the information necessary to do that properly. Right. Um so yes B12 uh taurine would be another one um the 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 ac- heme iron as opposed to just you know elemental iron you know Can't filings in the breakfast cereal um <laughs> exactly. you know all of these things the retinol as opposed to carotene all of these things matter the the essential fatty acids etc um and Yes, people can take supplements. Again, there are issues with supplements that I don't think we've properly looked at. But back to the point about swine and humans, up until recently, people were using rats to determine protein digestibility and they were doing fecal nitrogen. And this is one of the limitations of PDCAS as opposed to DIAS. And DIAS requires that you get an ileal sample.
1: I don't know what dias means. I don't know what ileal means.
3: Okay. Sorry. So dias is digestible, indispensable amino acid score. The oh, ilium okay. is the the junction between small and large intestine. Oh, okay. So in swine, in a laboratory, under veterinary observation and all the proper protocols, um, they insert what's called a cannula, essentially a port into the ilium of pigs and then they can feed that animal a known diet that's quantified, not a table, but they actually do the, the, the careful analysis and then they can pull the sample from the digesta as it moves from the small intestine to the large intestine. So they can know actually what has been digested between the mouth and the ileum without wow. contamination in the large intestine. So you begin to see that this is expensive work It's not trivial, but Mm -hmm. it's work that needs to be done in order for human. And this has been accepted, accepted by international experts as far as where we should be going to the point where people have said FAO and others, food and agricultural organization that food labels should have indispensable amino acids listed as if they're ingredients like other nutrients. Now, Okay. I'm not so sure, but that, that's the direction, but it's going to take a while to get that kind of data. So like an
1: RDA of amino acids kind of thing.
3: They have determined, they have determined what the intake reference protein should be for different age groups. And again, that's an improvement because they now have three to, because human needs vary right. um, arguably there could be a fourth for us old farts because we know that we need a higher plane of nutrition as we age and certainly um, for
1: diabetics who have who body fat uh and you know a, a protein surrounding that body fat which then becomes part of the, the cycle
3: well, one of the, Whatever. Interesting- I, I'll
1: let Richard talk about yeah. that later. One of the, one of the
3: interesting <laughs> things in my life this last September was speaking to a low carb USA audience. I had been to a meat science conference and listened to right. um, Dr. Eric P. Berg, who's a meat scientist from North Dakota State University, give a presentation on this topic broadly. And he had gone and pulled together 10 different studies where they had swine feeding and they fed a deficient and a sufficient lysine diet. And across those 10 studies, there were three things that they saw. One was like um, significantly greater subcutaneous fat in the deficient diet, a like 87% greater marbling, intramuscular Mm. fat, Mm -hmm. and a significantly smaller loin eye muscle size. Mm. So, I had leveraged those slides to be part of my presentation in San Diego. And one of the things I did was I went to the pork board and got their images of uh, marbling scores and, and with input from Dr. Berg was able to say, you know, sufficient is marbling score two. And the average of these deficient diets was marbling score five and showed that the next day, a physician surgeon from St. Louis came up to me and said, when you put that up, I looked at my partner and said, this is what I'm seeing in my patients. Yeah. That he's a Mm. chronic pain person. He's serving a low socioeconomic population in St. Louis. And he says, I'm installing $60,000 devices for chronic pain, back pain that don't work. Mm. What if it's lysine deficiency? And then he shows me that there is an established association between intramuscular fat in the back muscles and chronic back pain. Wow! Right. Now think about the kinds of foods that people are eating, the cheap grain-based processed stuff, which we just talked about. When you make it brown and crispy, you take the lysine that was there, low that it was, and make it essentially unavailable. You I don't know. You
0: it using the Maillard reaction. So exactly. So you deplete there you lysine go. directly. So, mm. yeah. I mean, fist it, bump. It, yeah, <laughs> fist bump. Virtual <laughs> fist bump. So um, it seems almost like what you're suggesting is that we need RDAs for available amino acids. That we need to we need that those that are essential, um, indispensable, the indispensable um, uh, amino acids that we can't make that we have to eat in our diet. That we should have individual RDAs for those rather than an RDA for whole protein.
3: Well, I think it's fair to say the RDA at 0.8 grams per kilogram body weight is insufficient. And others have suggested something more like 1.2 to 1.6, you know, somewhere in that realm. We then need to understand that all of those are defined as high quality. Yeah. yeah or right. reference, you know, they call it reference protein, then they call it high quality, and then they define that as meat, eggs, dairy, seafood.
0: I mean, you wouldn't want one gram per kilogram of three quarter reference weight, or of reference weight of say, hundred percent glycine, for example. You're going to be essentially essentially deficient in what seven or eight other
3: amino acids. Yeah, so, yeah. 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 So, so I think that uh, the DIA's approach is to find the is is to define the protein quality, right? So quantity of the digestible indispensable amino acids per gram of protein. And then we look to what the overall protein intake wants to be, because again, they all have to be there in the appropriate level to allow us to utilize the protein that we're getting. So I, I think that there are people who make recommendations of you know, how many grams of lysine or leucine someone needs at each meal. Um you know, I, I think that if we can focus on getting those excellent sources of protein at sufficient quantities, then we're probably not needing to worry about the, the specifics, which is why, you know, not cluttering, not getting a label that's this long <laughs> to put on something, I think is probably yeah. a better approach. But it, it's, it's important for us to understand all this or someone to, so yeah. that we have more nuanced conversations going forward. So part of this then ripples back into environmental considerations because too much of the environmental conversation is about, well, you know, we have so many pounds of protein in quotes from plants compared to how many pounds of protein we get from animals. And then we look at, you know, emissions values and we say, Oh, look, they, these plants are so much better. Again, in Moen's paper, it it decreased when, when they shifted from looking at a crude protein, I think he used the phrase gross protein, which means the same thing, yield to a utilizable lysine yield. It took the greenhouse gas emission intensity of milk down by a factor of 100, wow, 100. And it put everything on a very comparable basis, plant and animal. And there's one more thing there because, again, metrics matter. That's all based on using GWP 100 instead of GWP star. The last IPCC report stated that GWP GWP 100 has been overestimating the impact of enteric methane burps from ruminants oh, by a yeah. factor of three to four times. Right. So, I remember seeing your slide on this. So Which, so now all those impact values need to be decreased by, let's just call it a third. <laughs> hmm.
0: So what you're saying is that um, the reported uh, amount of methane being produced from animals um, that we're going to eat in their diet is a third of what is being claimed.
3: No, the way I'd put it. So, what GWP star does is it's a better representation of the warming potential of methane from enteric, this, this biogenic methane. So the idea being that biogenic methane, carbon dioxide through photosynthesis makes carbohydrates, which are then reduced to methane. A small part of them go to methane, but that methane is then oxidized to CO two within right, ten so it's years. Part
0: of the local cycle, yeah,
3: exactly. Okay. Uh, as a appo- so so in net, it represents no new atmospheric carbon dioxide. Hmm because it's a cycling. GWP 100 didn't take that into account. GWP star does. And what's GWP, Pete? It's global warming potential. Oh, right. Oh. Okay. Mm-hmm. And, and so this has been what's used to estimate, to, to, to do the conversion and the estimation of its impact. So when we take that into account, that lowers the impact. It's, it's not that methane isn't important in this conversation, but it is to say that methane from cow burps is very different than methane from, you know, petrochemical in, industrial um, fertilizers, f- uh, the Elon the, Musk. The, the yeah. extraction of it from the the ground and not capping wells, air travel, etc., um, etc. Et so again, metrics matter. It's more nuanced than we've been having the conversation. But I'm fairly convinced that we're on the verge of recognizing that these conversations that we've been having, such as there even conversations, are. Getting to the point where the, there, there really isn't the impact that we've felt there has been and we've been led to believe. Now, we do have to recognize that, for example, in the United States, um, the, the emissions intensity for lean boneless beef is something like 12 kilograms of carbon dioxide equivalent per kilogram of beef in places like Zimbabwe it's 70
0: Wow why mm. why's that, that different
3: well um, there are a number of factors but it gets down to efficiency of the livestock systems right so maybe it's not yeah reproductive efficiency lower quality feed mm. you know having animals that aren't productive as part of the herd, these all then go against whatever is produced by those animals, right? In terms of the budget,
1: could be the climate, the environment that they're raised in, as well, and the the grasses or whatever they're.
3: Well, cl- yeah, it's always that's always the climate influences what feed resources, yeah, and then that yeah. feed resource quality is going to influence how productive the animals are.
1: The other thing I wanted to mention before. Uh, Because I know you guys really want to get into it. But the only obvious thing that comes to mind is uh, talk about, you know, um, the impact on the environment from the industrial meat raising complex versus letting a ruminant or a set of ruminants, you know, rotate open grasslands and um, and and sort of
0: feed loss versus grassland to me.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, we've been living with animals probably longer than we've been living <laughs> as, as humans. I mean, just imagine I can't imagine uh humans without animals. We sort of need them.
3: Yeah, I think that it's pretty clear that the the resources that were provided by the large herbivores is what drove our evolution as a species. I yeah. think that that's fairly clear. Yeah. Um I, I think one of the advantages of ruminants is that globally, something like 96% of all the feed that goes into all the ruminants in domestic herds globally, 96% is not human utilizable. And wow. of that 4% that's left, that's cereals, that's grain. Totes. But yeah. a quarter of that was for, is estimated to be for whatever reason, not, you know, off grade. There's a lot of reasons why even if you're going to eat cereals, you don't want them contaminated or spoiled in some way, whatever. So ruminants globally are this upcycler of resource into what we, must have now. Mm. I twitch at certain phrases because I hear them a lot and my experience is that people don't understand them, but they're sort of pejorative by nature, right? So when you say industrial meat, I have to point out that even in the United States, 90% of what the typical U S commercial steer eats lifetime is not human utilizable. So only 10% roughly is cereals, mostly corn is typical, but there are variations. Okay. Um, number two is people assume that animals on feed in a feed yard have higher emissions than animals on grass, and that's not true. Mm. Hmm. Um, number three is that here in our fair land of North America, we have something called winter. And during that time, grazing options in large parts of our landscape are are not available. And mm-hmm. so animals have to go somewhere to be maintained. Okay. So that's a feedlot. Um, the systems that we have are in many cases based on cow-calf operating on Relatively low productive lands, uh, Hmm. even that. I mean, we look at it in terms of wildlife and others, you know, it's not low value, but uh, they're, they're not as productive as the class one farmland in Iowa, for example. And so, but that's a perfect place to have cow calf where then the calf is moved to maybe higher quality pasture somewhere, or maybe it goes into a feedlot. So we're talking about in the US beef industry where maybe three quarters of its life is spent on pasture hmm. and maybe only four months or so ends up in a feed yard. And one of the reasons for those confined operations is to contain manure and things like that and prevent it from contaminating, you know, so th- there are many ways to look at this. Um, it, it it certainly is fundamentally different than maybe poultry systems or swine systems, right? Which are
0: way more intensive. Yeah,
3: there are justifications for swine and poultry systems the way they are, but it's just fair to point out that there are differences, and we shouldn't lump them all together. And if people choose to eat beef because they don't like the way poultry is produced, okay. Go ahead and enjoy your beef, lamb. It's it's easier to get lamb to finish quality without the you know feeding. It doesn't always happen in the United States, but mm. there are many more producers who can do that. And of course, we go to New Zealand, Australia. New Zealand, we see yeah. difference.
0: As a rule, grass fed.
3: Well, in Australia, it's fair to point out that there's a growing feedlot industry in oh, Australia yeah. to produce a more consistent more higher value beef especially for export.
0: Yeah. I th- we've had feedlots for quite some time. I we've got family friends who ran feedlots. Um, I grew up on a cattle cattle property in Queensland. So um you know I I'm, I'm integrated into that uh, community but the um, uh, it was mainly uh, Paul Hereford cattle uh, f- feedlots just to get a consistent nice consistent um, uh, product, but, but lambs in Australia are all grass fed. There, there are no lambs on feedlots. Um, they're milk, obviously milk fed and then grass fed. And, mm. and for the most part, uh, they it, it's, I think it's fairly rare that sheep are, uh, of, of, uh, are on feedlots. So, mm. um, they generally grazes. So, um, but yeah, cattle and, and especially certain breeds of cattle are commonly, you know, they get a hundred days in a feedlot prior to slaughter. So. That's fairly
1: standard, Peter. What's next for you? What are you working on right now?
3: Oh, I'm involved in a number of organizations, um, national and international. Um, I just gave. It was really unfortunate. It got delayed by uh, what you know, the whole closing down of travel and things. There was supposed to be an international grasslands congress in Nairobi, Kenya, wow. in October of twenty that I was really looking forward to attending um, that got pushed to this year and then finally got converted to virtual. So a presentation that I gave there is making the case of why we need a ruminant revolution. Mm-hmm. And part of that revolution is to stop listening to the people that have been giving us the dietary information we've been getting. Because yeah. that dietary information c- has contaminated our scientific literature. Yep. And impacts development and sustainability goals and things internationally. And, and we need to get to this, this point of, um, just sort of doing a reset on all of it and, and finding the resources that we need to like, we had to have in the 60s and 70s to avoid famine by increasing plant agriculture productivity. We yeah. need a higher quality diet now to help humanity develop and flourish um, in absence of chronic disease, which – I'm going to tie back to proper nutrition. Part of our issue is we need to understand that obesity and metabolic syndrome is malnutrition every bit as much as stunting and wasting, and and um, anemia are. Um, but we we still have this schizophrenia in in p- the communities that are doing this kind of work, where the same presenter will stand up and say. You know, we, there's the, these are the harms from too little, but don't eat too much. Yeah. Like somewhere animal (laughs) source food transitions from being an essential to, and I understand that that can happen with micronutrients and things, but it, Mm. it, it is necessary for us to have that conversation. So that's one of the things that I'm, I'm pushing hard to try to get more into the awareness of the groups of Researchers and my agricultural tribe. Um, in 23, there'll be an international conference in the U.S. The theme of that international grasslands Congress will be grasslands for soil, animal and human health. Hmm. And so this is an opportunity. Hopefully we'll be able to have hundreds of people from all across the world. Government agency research, some producers coming together, and this will be an opportunity to get some information in front of them. You know, part of the message is back to you know making it personal. Do you think right. you're part of the eighty eight, or do you think you're part of the twelve? Well, what the right. heck are you talking about, Pete? <laughs> right. Oh, well, let well, me. Well, do I'm you. glad you
0: asked. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so I've got I've got two, uh, one question and one observation. Uh, I'll start with the observation first, and that is that. Um, uh, you were talking about, uh, lysine deficiency causing intramyocellular, uh, lipid droplets and you know, marbling. Um, one of the things I, I'm chasing down is the entire feedback loop that causes insulin resistance. And it's, it, it actually starts with it. it, it, it obviously it starts with insulin, starts with hyperinsulinemia. anemia. But one of the, one of the problems that, um, Uh, insulin signaling does independent of glucose um, disposal is when insulin goes up uh, your uh, ability to get uh, fatty acids into the mitochondria is inhibited Um, insulin signaling turns on one of the key enzymes for making new fats which which shuts off fats getting into the mitochondria so you you basically uh, you can't burn fatty acids so you lose the sink of fatty acids, but you still have the source that's pouring fatty acids into the into the rest of the body. And so, what happens is you, you, cells have these buffers called lipid droplets that that store the the lipids until they can until insulin goes down and they can get it into the mitochondria to be utilised for, for energy. And so, these lipid droplets um, they compete with the glucose transporter for uh, membrane fusion proteins called SNAP twenty three. Uh, or we'll snare proteins. But so essentially, what happens is if you have more of these lipid droplets, you were saying in the, in the back muscles, this, um, this physician saw them in the back muscles of people with uh, chronic back pain. Those droplet droplets, those lipid droplets are competing, uh, with the glucose transporter so that the glucose transporter has to get much more insulin signal. To be able to fuse to the to the membrane because it's running out of these proteins that are required for for mem- fusion with the plasma membrane, so that closes the entire cycle because once you can't get the glucose transporter moved to the plasma membrane, you can't clear glucose. The the pancreas sees that and it, and sp- sends out more insulin, and it, it's that's the that's the feedback cycle there. So that's why. Um, Essentially, diabetics are inhibited from burning fatty acids at the same time as being unable to get glucose into the cell. It's, it's why a fat man is hungry. It's why type two diabetics, despite swimming in fuel, are unable to generate energy. And the interesting thing is that lysine deficiency could do the same thing as well. And that is how lysine deficiency could cause insulin resistance, because if it's causing an increase in, in lipid lipid droplets, it's going to be tying into the exact same thing. Mm-hmm.
3: Uh, the, one of uh, – I know you had a question, but w- one of the things that Professor Berg mentioned in his talk was that he is positing that metabolic syndrome, he's thinking of it as subclinical kwashiorkor. and. And kwashiorkor typically is the emaciated child with the bloated, edemic belly, mm-hmm. swollen belly. Yeah. And if I understand properly, kwashiorkor is like a West African word that means the 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 sickness that the baby gets when the next child comes. Wow. In other uh-huh. words, this child is now weaned when the next yeah. baby comes. Onto a low quality cereal based diet. Wow. Right. And develops this. And Professor Berg is working along the assumption, just what you said, which is that metabolic syndrome, it could in fact be driven in large part due to this poor protein quality based diet. And then we look at US diet and I just asked, uh, Professor Moen, this question in an email about the work that he did in low and middle income countries. Has anybody done that in the in higher income countries? Because mm-hmm. what did we just see about you know the percent of calories in in American diet coming from what you know starch, sugar, mm-hmm. vegetable oil? I mean, yeah. Yeah. that's. So all it, the cheap it, inputs, mm. it, exactly, and and the highly processed inputs, which again are going to be even lower in protein quality than the plant ingredient that started with. So all of these things begin to become a really potentially well for me. It's compelling and certainly interesting. So uh, I just yeah. mm. that thought of quashyorkor had come in and out of my mind at least twice while we've been. On this, and I just wanted to get right. it out. So back yeah. to your question.
0: No, so that, now that's very interesting. Uh, the question I have is Carl and I have been telling people for many years that, uh, just to eat, uh, limit your carbohydrates to whatever, le- whatever level works for you. For us, it's 20 grams a day, and that's a very small amount of carbohydrates. And then getting essential protein, which, which for us is between one and 1. 1.5 grams per kilo of lean mass, and then eating fat to society. Now, we generally say get your protein from whatever source, but you're suggesting that if your protein is from a high, highly bioavailable source like mammal meat, for example, um, we're mammals. Mammals are made from the same set of Lego blocks that we are, mm. and plants are made from a different set of Lego blocks. And so... If you uh and you suggested the the, the minimum intake should be around about one point two. We got our data from urea appearance studies, which basically show that as you increase protein in the diet, eventually you'll start seeing urea appearing in urine, which tells you now we're wasting protein for energy because we have enough essential uh, protein. Um, do you think we should be changing it to one point two as a minimum? Or do you well, think we should yeah. be advising people to eat, eat, um,
3: you know, meat? <laughs> yeah. So first of all, I, I am not that kind of doctor, right? So I don't give <laughs> okay. advice, right? Yeah, right. Except yeah. if you want to know how to improve your pastures or, you know, that kind of. It's it's important to keep that in mind, um, if only for my own humility. It I can certainly point to people like. Stuart Phillips, who is making the case of 1.2, um, I think it's arguable that if somebody is looking to get protein from animal source foods, making up 1 to 1.2 and then forgetting about what's coming from other sources. I mean, yeah. so here's another thing. Um, we spend a lot of time in forage management, you know, looking at hay or silage trying to account for the tremendous variability in nutrient contents that it can occur even in, let's just say, lucerne or alfalfa, different name for the same thing. And, and so, that value varies from cutting to cutting, year to year, field to field, some varietal difference as well. So, we've gone long past using a book value for hay content. Same thing happens with plant source foods. Right. And yeah. I'm pretty sure that those differences batch to batch aren't accounted for when they print the label or put it in your tracker or wherever else you're getting data from. So, you know, now we can tie that in with Atwater and everything else and go, I, I think we've been spending a lot of time looking at numbers that probably don't mean what we think they mean. Um, so, you know, Animal source food varies much less in its nutrient content than plant source food. Because you've already
0: gone through a homeostasis in the animal.
3: Exactly. Exactly. So we can depend on that for our diet. Um, The thing that I wonder about with something like um, a urea study is, again, if we are somehow limited by the amino acids in whatever that protein source is that we're eating, Mm. then we're going to take anything above that and get rid of it. Well, that doesn't mean we couldn't have used more protein had it been balanced. Mm. Right. So that would be another thing to to, just as a, "Mm, I wonder kind of thing.
0: Yeah. So the range is, the range in humans is quite dramatic. It's from 0.3 to 1.0 for humans who have who, for, for urea to first arrive which is remarkable that somebody could have so little protein before the before
3: urea showed up
0: you know yeah well so and and
3: and I you know i what the safe upper limit is somewhere up in the three, 3. grams 2? per kilogram yeah
0: 3. and, and that's grams.
3: yeah yeah that's only because we've seen no harm doesn't mean it couldn't even be higher. Now, that's a whale of a lot, and I'm not suggesting anybody get there. I guess the safe thing to say is we have a tremendous window in which to shoot and and, and that we should feel comfortable doing that to the point of our personal response.
1: Is there such a thing, guys, as a home urea test so that you could test it for yourself?
3: I'm not aware of it.
1: I mean, wouldn't that be nice?
3: Yeah. So, you know, two of my messages are, you know, eating this way won't kill you and it won't kill the planet. Yeah. Yeah. Right. But on the other side of this is chronic disease has an environmental footprint itself. Oh, yeah. Good point. So, you know, put crudely, what's what's the environmental footprint of diabetics losing their feet? Mm. I mean, put crudely, I recognize it. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Oh, speaking of somebody who almost lost a toe, I appreciate the metaphor.
3: Yeah. (laughs) Um, You know, I, I have seen and I've reported and seen the calculations. So the pharmaceutical industry itself has a tremendous footprint. Mm. Yeah, and and yes. it tends to not be from biogenic, right? It tends to be from um, a, another source of input. Let alone what it does. So, anytime we talk about sustainability, if we're not including in economic as well as social factors with the environmental factors, we're not having an honest conversation. They Indeed. all have to be considered, and there's going to be trade offs and back and forths, right? Um, but I've seen figures that say that in the, the 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 greenhouse gas emission footprint for the US healthcare industry is estimated to be somewhere around 10% of the total and all of agriculture is, you know, sort of like 9%. And and they're they're not exactly comparable figures. The point is just to say, you know, beef is like two. Hmm. Yeah. So yeah. the it's there. It's not often thought about. Um, someone gave me the the figure that if the average American type two diabetic could eliminate their medication use, mm-hmm. let's just hypothetically assume. Yeah, that, something that, that like that, that could, could ever happen. Because yeah, just, just <laughs> everybody knows let's that's wild. impossible. Yeah, just just just, <laughs> just let's be wild for a moment. I don't so know if, if you saw could, my
1: tongue firmly planted in my cheek there. <laughs>
3: If they could do that, they would reduce their carbon footprint twenty nine percent more. Wow! Than by going from a high meat to a vegan diet. Wow. wow! And we know that people can stay on a high meat diet longer than they can. So mm-hmm. this and and now think about this is a global reality of metabolic illness. You know, then, we, we've we've talked about this in the past as diseases of prosperity or whatever plagues of prosperity. This this goes low, middle income, high income countries, and its impacts arguably are harsher in the low and middle income countries on the individuals. Guys, I mean, we're we're yeah.
1: running out of time. I I want no! to yes, I know, no! I know, but one last thing. I just want to leave it here that many vegans experience more farting than people on a carnivore diet so i'm not saying that it's statistically significant i'm just saying if you eat a lot of vegetables you're going to fart more you're going to be contributing to global warming Uh, uh, and there we go but i want to encourage everybody to pick this up especially you peter uh this conversation up on the ketogenic forums peter's handle on the keto forums is sodfather. who knew So I encourage us to start a new topic and uh, and, and continue the conversation.
3: Well, thank you for the opportunity. Thanks for getting back together. Um, Thanks for getting my day off to a good start.
1: Likewise. Yes. Thank you very
2: much.
3: We will fight for bovine freedom
2: and hold our large heads high.
3: We will run for. buffalo or die. cows
1: with guns it's always great to talk to Peter I know we ran a little bit long there but I figured you know you haven't really talked to Peter in a long time and no, you guys were really jo- juicing on the, uh, yeah, on the science
0: <laughs>
1: yeah who am sorry, I to stop you there about
0: that. sorry about that <laughs>
1: No, no, it's great, it's great, and again, we should pick this up in the forum as I suggested. So, Richard, you got some malaki for us, do you?
0: I think it's time to look into some malaki.
1: <laughs> malaki. Well, that's where we look at some bullshit floating around in the nutritional space, right?
0: Yeah, but we don't call it bullshit anymore.
1: Well, you just said the word; it's still bullshit, right?
0: Oh yeah, hundred percent.
1: All right, so what malarkey are we looking at today? This one
0: won't make as many friends in the low-carb community, but it has to Mm. be said. The argument that we should be eating protein is everywhere, and we've just discussed it with Peter. Uh, But a lot of the arguments that we should be eating more protein, unlike Peter's conversation, isn't necessarily evidence-based. I'm going Mm. to unpack some of the claims and look at what the literature tells us.
1: the really weird thing is that you don't hear the call to increase protein from just low-carb communities. You hear it uh, from vegan groups talking about how to get more protein in your diet, using pulses. Uh, You see it from dieticians who have renamed an entire food group protein. And you see it on all the boxes as you walk down the breakfast cereal aisle at the store.
0: Right. And you know if you're resonating with the frauds who make health claims on breakfast cereals, then alarm bells should be going off. Yeah. In the 1960s, they used to advertise all the healthy vitamins and minerals a growing body needs. Mm. But that was because they added supplements into their products because the underlying food was micronutrient depleted. Some corn-based flake products even added iron filings to the batch because, Mm. hey, iron is a nutrient, but elemental iron like that, it's not really bioavailable. You just end up making magnetic poo. (laughs)
1: <laughs> I've seen that on YouTube. You could crush up breakfast cereal, put it in a plastic bag with water, and put a magnet near it, and you'll get iron filings.
0: <laughs> and a bag of poo. <laughs> right. And in the 1970s, they used to advertise low-fat,
1: high-energy. Translated, this is full of sugar and starch.
0: Mm-hmm. And then in the 1990s, it was low in cholesterol. And in the 2010s, cereals suddenly came out that were high in plant-based sterols called phytosterols, which magically lower animal sterols in you.
1: Is that a good thing?
0: Probably not. Cholesterol is one of the most important lipids in every membrane in our body. Mm. There's no long-term evidence that supports the safety of trying to displace your cholesterol with plant sterols. So now if you look at cereal boxes that say high protein, when you actually compare the nutrients, and I'm going to give you an example here, one of the Australian cereals nicknamed the Iron Man food. The actual amount of protein in this product went from 21.2% to 21.8%. Oh, boy. That product is still 65.2% sugar and starch, and yet the health claim is now with more protein.
1: Well, that is some serious malachy.
0: <laughs> There's
1: no practical difference between 212 and
0: 21.8%. Exactly. So this protein is a health halo effect. Is also common amongst the low-carb groups on social media. And look, 95% of what they say is good evidence-based information.
1: Right, which implies that 5% is malarkey. Well, (laughs) at least that's better odds than dietary guidelines, which are about as predictive as a tossed coin.
0: Yeah, the food pyramid is 50% useful and 50% malarkey. The advice to eat leafy greens and meats and fish is great. The advice supporting low-fat foods and grains, that's malarkey. Look, if they'd stuck to fatty meats and leafy greens and to restrict sugars and starch, they'd be actually helping people. The reason they can't quite bring themselves to suggest people eat fat is that fat has twice the energy density of other fuels. So if you restrict fats, then gram for gram, you get twice the bang for butt in restricting calories. Mm -hmm. And that brings me to some low-carb diets that are also energy restrictive, mostly by reducing fats. As I mentioned a few weeks ago, the problem with caloric restriction is the next day you burn less. And if you keep doing it, like, say, a contestant on The Biggest Loser, then after 13 weeks of that, your daily energy consumption can have dropped by 1,000 kilocalories per day. Mm -hmm. And then six years later, you still may be burning 800 kilocalories less than you were at the beginning of the TV show, and you've gained back all of the weight that you've lost and more. You've just broken your metabolism to win a TV show. Well done. Yeah. Oops. The first kind of low-carb, low-calorie diet that I'm going to call out is the protein-sparing modified fast. The idea here is to eat mostly protein, very little fat or carbohydrates. Now, don't get me wrong, a protein-sparing modified fast, or PMSF, can be a very useful targeted strategy if you're already leanish and you want to make weight for a combat sport or a body comp- comp- competition. But for type 2 diabetics, that would be metabolic jackass.
1: <laughs> I don't think we can say It's not professional.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It's only a short-term crash diet, for one. A diabetic isn't going to change their body comp by starving themselves for a few days. It's going Mm. to take a couple of months, and even bodybuilders who swear by this diet only use it for a few weeks and only when cutting for a competition. Hmm. A type 2 diabetic wanting to lose body fat needs to burn body fat, and to do that, they need to lower insulin. A fast fast does that. A low-carb, high fat ketogenic diet does that a high protein diet however raises insulin and gannon and nuttle showed that a diabetic challenge with a protein raises insulin almost as much as they do for a carbohydrate challenge so so what happens if you raise insulin and you're lean and you have plenty of amino acids in circulation well you shuttle those amino acids into your muscle cells to repair the damage you just did in your last workout and once insulin drops after an hour after the meal you burn fat. Hmm. So what happens if you raise insulin and you're lean and you have plenty of amino acids in circulation? You shuttle those amino acids into your muscle cells to repair the damage that you did in your last workout. And once insulin drops after an hour, then you burn body fat that is covering those muscles. If a diabetic does that, then they have elevated insulin for up to six hours after the meal and they can't burn fatty acids and so they're only burning glucose and amino acids. And there isn't a lot of glucose around if you're on a protein-sparing modified fast. So you waste amino acids for energy for six hours after the meal burning very little fat while making ammonia. Hmm. And that brings me to the protein versus energy diet.
1: Okay, so why is that malarkey?
0: Well, the premise is that of the three macronutrients that we get calories from, carbs and fat are just nutrition-free calories. That's the E. So the diet of so the idea of this diet is if you want to eat well you should eat more protein and less energy
1: hmm so what's wrong with that
0: well the first fanciful claim is that protein is not energy it is the way that almost every carbon atom in your protein that you digest will leave your body is exhaled as carbon carbon dioxide
1: so it's used to make energy in respiration
0: yep. The only real exception is some sloughed off skin or hair fall, some in urine, especially if your kidneys are in trouble, and those left on your body when you die.
1: So if protein is energy, then it's the E versus E diet, right?
0: (laughs) Not exactly. Because when you use molecules of amino acids for energy, you have to first get rid of the nitrogen atoms so that you can make ammonia from them.
1: Okay. So it's E plus ammonia versus E.
0: Right. And ammonia is toxic. So we have to turn that into urea and expel it in urine.
1: Okay. So it's the E plus P versus E diet.
0: If you're lucky. We can only get rid of so much ammonia via urea. And when the amount of protein that we eat gets too high, then ammonia builds up and we're at risk of ammonia toxicity or rabbit starvation.
1: Rabbit starvation. How do we know that?
0: Well, there are studies where a sample population is fed increasing amounts of protein, and their urine is tested. And as the protein goes up, so does the urea ex- excreted. But at mm. some point, increasing protein intake doesn't increase urea excreted. That's the rate limit. You've saturated your ability to safely eat more protein when you when you're not increasing the amount of urea that's coming out.
1: What is that point?
0: It's roughly three point two grams of protein intake per kilogram of lean mass, or roughly three-quarters of your total body weight.
1: Does it differ from person to person? I've heard people saying that they eat 4.4 grams per kilogram.
0: Yeah, that's probably malarkey.
1: (laughs) Is that the only problem with a high-protein, low-energy diet?
0: Not even close. The second fancy is that fat is nutrient-free. Many of our essential cofactors, vitamins A, D, E, and K, that we must get from diet are fat-soluble. Only mm. B, vitamins B and C are water-soluble. Mm. So those fat-soluble vitamins are in animal fat. That is where the animals that concentrate these nutrients store them. Also, there are fats that are absolutely essential. We can't desaturate fatty acids beyond the ninth carbon bond. So for many neurotransmitters and specialized lipids for membrane function, we must eat their raw materials. Mm. So it's silly that fat is considered to be a nutrient-free calorie.
1: So how about the protein leverage hypothesis that if you don't have enough protein, you will eat Krispy Kreme donuts until you have enough energy?
0: Sure, if you aren't eating enough protein, but you really don't need much. The Mm. protein leverage hypothesis comes from an observation in locusts that as protein percent in their feed drops, they eat more calories. Australian entomologists Simpson and Reubenheimer have suggested this hypothesis explains why humans are obese, The protein in our food is getting diluted. And they did this meta-analysis of ad libitum human feeding studies that seemed to show that humans protect an essential protein requirement. Hmm. The next step, of course, is to test that hypothesis. They have the observation in locusts. They've looked at epidemiological data in feeding studies. So the next step is to actually test it. So they did that, feeding people in a double-blind study food, ad libitum, that was either 10%, 15% or 25% protein. What they predicted was that as you increase protein, people will eat fewer calories. What they actually found was from 10 to 15%, there was a decrease in energy consumed, but for 15 to 25%, there wasn't any significant difference. This suggests that the hypothesis is incomplete. I suspect it's because humans will defend an essential requirement of protein that's somewhere between 10 and 15%. And above that, it becomes an energy leverage hypothesis rather than the protein-leverage hypothesis. Interesting. The best way to find out how much protein humans actually require is urea appearance studies. Well, the study that's commonly used is RAND et al. 2003, where they gave people increasing amounts of protein from nothing and to the point where urea starts to show up in urine. And that tells you what the essential lower limit is. If you eat too little protein, you won't pee out urea. Instead, you'll be reusing that you make to make new amino acids. They had a variety of results from 0.3 grams per kilogram of lean mass to 1.0 grams per kilogram of lean mass.
1: All right, so that's where we get our 1 to 1.5 grams per kilogram of lean mass from.
0: Exactly. There's no no one in the study for whom 1.0 would not be enough. So we Mm. say 1 to 1.5 just to make sure that everybody has more than enough. Remember, we do need to turn some amino acids into new glucose, but we can make new glucose from lactate, from glycolysis, and glycerol from lipolysis. So the total amount is really quite low for somebody who is preferential burning fatty acids for energy.
1: Okay. Why not more? Why don't we say 1.0 to 3.2?
0: Remember, we're trying to save type 2 diabetics here, not trying to get rid of the freshman 15 or the COVID-30. Yeah. The goal to fix type 2 diabetes is to lower insulin and for type 2 diabetics, protein has been experimentally seen to be almost as insulinogenic as glucose.
1: Wow, but we still need some.
0: Right, we need some, and 1 gram per kilogram is evidently enough for most people, so 1 to 1.5 is at the lower end of that safe range.
1: All right, anything you like about the p to e diet?
0: I like the pretty infographics, even if – I don't agree with the premises of the diet. I appreciate (laughs) good technical communication. Mm. The diet itself introduces people to a lot of good food, but at its core it is fat phobic and not much better for diabetes than a low-fat plant-based diet. It's an oversimplified message that when you drill into it uh, has very little support.
1: Yeah, that reminds me of the animals in George Orwell's animal farm, chanting four legs good, two legs bad. (laughs)
0: <laughs> right, useful to get a simple message across, but it falls apart when the pigs that were leading them started walking around on two legs, and uh, that's some malarkey.
1: That is some uh, Malaki. All right, from Malaki to uh, recipes! recipes. Hello. Uh uh-huh. Hello,
2: Carrie. Hello, <laughs> it, it's the Harry. recipe girl. I'm here. <laughs>
1: You're back. So glad to have you back. What you got for us this week, Carrie?
2: Well, we got holidays coming.
1: We, do. Yeah,
0: we And do. I know
2: people listen to these shows all year long, but it seemed appropriate for, for the 20 months or so we've all been battling with this thing. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I really feel like we need to kind of get everybody back in the holiday spirit because last year it kind of – people were – kind of yeah. didn't know what to do and, and the holidays kind of really fell a bit flat and this year I'm like nope we just we got to get back into it so today we are going to do two of the holiday essentials which is cranberry sauce and gravy
0: nice all right A yeah. gravy is really difficult for keto people to to make so this is going to be interesting
2: and this is going to be the tastiest gravy you've ever had, keto or not. Of course eh? it is. So, yay us. <laughs> yeah. Now, cranberry sauce is actually incredibly easy. There's a couple of key things you got to know. The sweetener you use is super important. Um, mm-hmm. If you do not want crunchy cranberries, which I'm assuming that almost everybody is not going to want crunchy cranberries so the sweetener is important for this one but it's actually mm. really really simple and i have so many people tell me that this is their favorite cranberry sauce recipe pre or post or current keto
0: so i love those recipes where the the keto version is better than the than the yep. version it's replacing pizzas are a bit like that but Yeah, I okay.
1: Fried chicken. Lay it on me.
0: All right, so
2: you're going to get one orange and you're going to zest it.
0: So you're just grating off the outside part of the skin? Yep. Yeah, just the orange bit, not the white bit.
2: The white bit is bitter, so you just want the very top, the very orange, and you're going to do it straight in the pan because we don't like doing dishes that we really don't need to wash. Then you're going to juice that orange, cut it in half and juice it, And you're going to add enough water to the orange juice to make it up to one cup or eight fluid ounces. And then you're going to put your orange juice water into the pan with your zest. And you're going to add 12 ounces of fresh or frozen cranberries. Doesn't make any difference. And you're going to add eight ounces of xylitol or allulose. What you must not do is use erythritol or any blend Mm. that is basically erythritol. So your erythritol monk fruit blends, your Truvia's, your none of that. If it's mainly erythritol, don't use it because you will be sad. You will have crunchy cranberries. So you're going to use 8 ounces, 225 grams of xylitol or allulose, and you're going to put that in the pan with your zest, your orange water, And your cranberries. You're going to stir them well and then you're going to bring them to the boil over a high heat. When it comes to the boil, you're going to reduce the heat to a simmer and you're just going to let it simmer for 15 minutes, giving it a quick stir once in a while. Once your 15 minutes is up, you're going to remove it from the heat, you're going to pour it into a bowl and you're going to let it cool.
1: Can I ask a question that's probably on people's minds? You may. Uh orange juice. Eight ounces is like 30 grams of carbs. No, no.
2: So the juice of one orange is is like an eighth of a cup. You're gonna okay. juice the orange and then you add enough water to make one cup. So most of that cup of liquid is actually water. Right. If you want to do it without the juice and just use a cup of water, the flavor will be marginally less, but you can totally do yeah. that.
1: I find the real flavor from orange comes from, the, from right. the zest. Right. And if I need a substitute for orange juice in any way, uh, I go for Gatorade Zero because it has, you know, it's not so synthetic tasting. You could also – It gives you a little bit of that orange flavor. You could also
2: substitute lemon juice if you wanted to do like – half right. a, or two tablespoons of lemon juice and then make it up to one cup with water you can do that too
1: there's also orange extract that i use which you is nice you can also
2: do a couple of drops of orange extract and your eight fluid ounces of water so en- any so of those go. will work however the- it was not it's not Eight ounces of orange juice. Yeah, yeah, no,
1: I, no, no. I know that. I'm just saying for yep, ratio yep, yep. purposes, you know, there's probably five or six carbs in 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 the whole thing.
0: So cranberries mm. are twelve percent carbohydrate. So there's there's you're going to be getting more crap more carbs from the cranberries than you are from the ah,
1: from okay from the other, even though
0: they're better, even though they're slightly tart, they're mm. um, <clears throat> they they still have some. Sugars in them. But you know, this is this is if you're gonna have cranberry cranberry sauce, you're just gonna have a tablespoon of the stuff. Right. You're yeah, gonna, you're right. yeah, you're, you're right. You're not gonna you're not gonna chug the entire container. So No.
2: Right. You're you're cream. not even gonna have there's <laughs> what? There's twelve ounces of cranberry. So you've got about actually I did the math on this. You're gonna end up with twenty one to twenty two ounces of finished sauce and you're not hmm. not even gonna going to consume an ounce of that
0: yeah got exactly. it cool so okay.
2: that's it put everything in a pan bring it to the boil turn it down simmer it for 15 minutes turn the heat off pour it in a bowl and leave it and it will set up like it will just set on its own because it's magic
0: so that's because the the fruit has pectins in it
2: right so yeah
0: that's doing the setting so, so the so, the trick really here is use xylitol, or if you have dogs, allulose. Yes. And
1: hmm. you're good. Yes. Or if you don't have dogs, allulose. Right. <laughs> well,
2: yeah. Or if, if you do, I do have like dogs, xylitol, just don't let them eat the cranberry sauce. <laughs> or lick the plates. <laughs> or lick the plates. Xylitol
0: is really poisonous to <laughs> yeah. dogs, yeah. So, good. the other thing yeah. to
2: know about cranberry sauce is when you, you'll see that when this gets cold, it is, it's solid. All you have to do to get that that cranberry, wholeberry consistency mm-hmm. is just stir it up. It will never re solidify to the extent that it was when you finished cooking it. It, it will mm-hmm. just be like that magical ca- wholeberry cranberry sauce that you know and yeah. love.
1: So, my mother uh, traditionally has made uh, fresh cranberry sauce at Thanksgiving when I was growing up.
0: Well, and so like that, it's. Right?
1: Yeah, it's very similar to what Carrie's mm-hmm. doing, except you just don't cook it. Yeah. So it's chopped fresh cranberries with orange zest and some sweetener and lemon. So all it's that. more like a relish. And it's, just, it's more mm-hmm. like a relish, exactly. And if yeah. you
2: want
0: the authentic cranberry sauce experience, then what you do is you get an old can and you put it in the can and put it in the fridge <laughs> and let it set and then cut the bottom off the can and put it on the plate so that people can see it's authentically can-shaped. You're absolutely. The,
2: you can make it authentically can-shaped by pouring it into a, a used clean can and letting it set on that. You absolutely <laughs> can nice. do that. Um, there's plenty of people who have used the jellied cranberry sauce recipe and made uh, yeah. can shapes.
0: <laughs> can shapes.
2: Jellied nice. cranberry sauce. So, well, I'm
0: all about the authenticity.
2: So um, that is your your whole berry cranberry sauce recipe. Um, Super delicious. Alright, so let's and it's put some gravy on it. Easy too. So, and fresh or frozen doesn't matter because I'm cheap. I always <laughs> buy up the cranberries after the holidays when they're like three bags for a dollar and put them in the freezer, mm. and then I've got my supply for for the next, next the, season. The, the next season's holidays. Cranberries are are fabulous. So that's your cranberry sauce. If you find that when it sets it doesn't set firm enough then you didn't cook it long enough and you can just put it back in the pan rewarm it cook it for a bit longer and it because it's just a function of here's the the science for you richard it's just a function of the amount of water that's left in it so if you if you simmer it for 15 minutes you get rid of enough water to make it set properly if you don't cook it for as long you're going to end up with a runnier sauce
0: right Nice. Well, I
1: like All it. right, I'm let's, let's that put now. some gravy on this cranberry All sauce. Right, gravy,
2: gravy. <laughs> so, we're going to start with, and I could have bottled this and sold it when I lived in Seattle and I had neighbors. They used to come around and beg me to make their gravy. Little did they know what was in it, but anyway, I, I happily obliged. <laughs> so, that's some
0: foreshadowing <laughs> right there. <laughs>
2: so, you're gonna need a turkey roasting in the oven, and okay. you, the most important thing the thing that makes this fabulously. Delicious but also fabulously nutritionally dense is that bag of bits that comes in the turkey you know when you bring your turkey home and you unwrap it and you wash it and you put your hand in the middle and there's a bag of bits in England uh, we call those giblets as GI yeah we call you them. do you call them giblets here? Yeah, okay, we do. Yeah. so giblets, and they're usually in a bag. Sometimes you don't even get the bag. You just get all of these bits. There'll be a, an a S-shaped skinny thing, a neck. There'll be organs where well, you're going to fish those all out. And you are going to, while your turkey is roasting, you are going to empty all of the contents of your bag of bits into, into a pan. And you're going to add just enough water to cover them. Then you're Mm going to place your pan over a medium heat and bring it to the boil. Then you're going to reduce it to a simmer and simmer it for 15 minutes until all the bits are cooked. It doesn't take long because they're very small. Then you're going to fish out. You're going to tip off the water or get all of your your bits and you're going to let them cool. The cooking water from your pan that you cooked your bits in, you're going to put in a blender because there's good stuff in there. That's not just water. And you are going to put the the bits that don't have any bones in. So there's some organs in there that don't have bones. And you're going to put those in the blender with the water. And then you're going to pick all the meat off of the neck. That's the bony part. You're going to pick all the bits off, put those in the blender. And when your turkey is about 30 minutes from being cooked, you are going to remove it from the oven and you are going to pour off all of the juices that are in your roasting pan. You're going to tip them off into a little bowl.
1: Scrape off the fond.
2: Right. So all all of the juices, you're going to put those in a bowl. You're going to put your turkey back in the oven and you're going to put all those turkey juices into the blender with your your bits of meat and your cooking water. Then you are going to blend the living daylights out of everything that's in the blender. You're going to add sea salt and ground black pepper to taste. And if you want a Richer, creamier gravy. At that point, you're either going to add a quarter of a cup of heavy cream, or you're going to add a quarter of a cup of thick coconut milk. That's the stuff that comes in the can. Um, for those of mm. you that don't want to do dairy, you're going to blend that until it's completely smooth. Then you're going to turn the blender to low, and you're going to take the 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 middle out of the blender lid, and you're going to tap half a teaspoon of guar into the blender while it's running and blend for 10 to 15 seconds. Don't overblend blend it. That's it. 10 to 15 seconds. Then you're going to stop the blender and decide if you want it any thicker. You can make your, I know some people like super thick gravy. Some people like super runny gravy. Test it. If you want it thicker, do the same process, but tap a half a teaspoon of konjac flour or glucomannan powder into the gravy while the blender is running, and again blend for 10 to 15 seconds, no longer. And then test the thickness of the gravy. I I would that that's going to be mediumly thick, which is pretty much how I like it. But again, you can make it thicker by adding more konjac a little bit at a time, or you can leave it as is. Then you're going to pour that into your jug or serving vessel and um and serve it. And Yay. that's it. And don't tell them what's in it. Just just bathe in all the compliments of how it's the best gravy they've ever eaten <laughs> and don't mention how you got to that point.
0: Yeah, you got there. <laughs> so the only problem, you might not want to serve this to me, and the only reason I say that is because I have a reaction to liver and I get violently ill.
2: <laughs> so, yeah, violently violent ill well. was not the point. <laughs>
0: No, <laughs> but, but, I, but I can suggest an alternative. So the, the mechanism for why this is setting is it's an emulsification between the fats that have come off the turkey and and the water, essentially. Mm-hmm. And the what gets that emulsification working is there's a, a lipid in the liver, very concentrated in the liver, but also available in egg yolks and other things called phosphatidylcholine, lecithin and so that is you're essentially making a a turkey stock mayonnaise right what yeah, I was going to say
1: it's like a mayo
0: and so um what you can do if you don't like liver you can in in australia when we buy chickens from the regular store there's no giblets or uh, turkey and geese and duck there's no giblets but if you buy from an asian um an asian uh, poultry store they have the neck actually attached and they cook them with the neck well, you mm-hmm. can just cut that off, use their neck and use chicken hearts. You can buy them independently and mm-hmm. you can use an egg yolk and you can probably get the same kind of thing happening. It probably won't taste as nice as the, as the one with livers because mm-hmm. – I understand livers are nice for people. The flavour of liver (laughs) is nice for people who can tolerate it. You you uh, can
2: also also just leave the liver when you've got all your bits, you've got your neck and the heart and things. You can also just pick the liver out and feed that to the dog or the cat or the uncle who loves liver. It seems to
1: me they're – Seems to me there might be fifty ways to love your liver.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I got fifty ways to hate my liver.
0: And the but, um, uh, yeah. the, the
2: reason that the, that little half teaspoon of guar gum is in there is because guar gum is another excellent. Its main job is emulsification, and because okay, because nice. the the turkey gravy, this gravy, especially if you put the heavy cream slash coconut cream in there, along with all the fat that's rendered out the turkey, it's very Fat heavy, so the guar gum is in there to give some extra bonds to holding the water and the fat in the emulsion that Richard talked about. So great, that's your turkey gravy. There are Carl will put a link to the recipe. Um, There's very detailed instructions. We've kind of run through it quickly, and it was a lot to remember. So the very detailed instructions are up there. You can go do it and um, be prepared to have the best turkey gravy ever
1: terry brown it's always great to talk to you and thank you for your yay
2: holidays
1: yay well that's a show
0: that's a very long show
1: a very long show thanks for listening
0: we hope you get as much out of this information as we do in putting it together
1: you know two keto dudes doesn't take ad revenue we have no benefactors with hidden agendas
0: that's right it's listeners like you who keep our lights on
1: and you know there are a few ways you can support us all of which are listed on our website at support2 Thanks again. And we'll see you next time on 2, Two Keto, Keto Dudes. Dudes.